Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend Chabrud and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Kedushin, daf Memchet, page 48. Well, we still are in the middle of discussion about this Bryso, which I'm now thinking I probably should have read, okay? Uh, that, uh, you know, Rav uh, seems to disagree with Rav's opinion um, that you cannot do Kedushin through a loan. And the second case in that Bryso was uh, discussing if you did Kedushin with a loan that was done orally, right? There was no document to support the loan, but it was an oral uh, agreement. And so the Gemara says as follows, So in the case of a loan that's done orally, what would the Tanayim actually be disagreeing about? So remember, you can go back to, um, uh, uh, you know, so remember earlier on yesterday's staff, um, it talked about how the Brisa was dealing with uh, different cases of loans owe, owed to the betrothal, right? That the first would be a loan that was recorded in a document, right? A man gives a woman a document that recorded another person's debt to him. And the second was a loan that was taken orally. And so the man basically tries to give the woman the right to collect that unrecorded debt, Okay. So now they're going to explain what are the Tanaim disagreeing about in that case in the Brisa. So according to Rav, according to Rav Huna, who says in the name of Rav, Rav Huna Amar Rav, but Rav Huna says in the name of Rav, Mana li biyadecha tenahu leploni. Right? In it, the cases where one person says to another, I have a mana in your hand, give it to so-and-so instead of me. Right. Or if he says in the presence of all three parties, meaning himself, the person who has the money and the person who who he wants to have benefit from the money, right, the 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 right to basically collect this money is transferred. So basically what they're saying is, is that in the Bryce's case, what's happening is, is that the 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 person doing the the Kedushin, right, the the man basically tells his debtor to repay the woman instead of him, okay? And all three parties were there when he said this, right? The woman was there and also the debtor. Mar Savar, so one one opinion, this would be the opinion of the Chachamim holds, when Rav said that the right of collection, right, could basically with all three of the people there, he said this only when it came to a deposit, Okay. Aval milvet lo, but he would not have said this when it comes to an actual loan itself. Umar Savar, right, and the other master who in the price says Rabbi Meir, Loshna Milva, the Loshna Pikadon. There's no difference between a loan or a deposit. In both of those cases, the right of collection, I guess is what we'll call it, right? The the idea that the lender can say uh, that the debtor could repay it to somebody else, it can be transferred over as long as all three are there. Okay, so the Gemara is now going to want to further discuss Rav's law about doing Kedushin with a loan and how it's discussed by the Tanayim. Name a Tanai, right? We could say, right, that whether or not Kedushin is allowed with a loan is a machloket of the Tanayim using another brisa. Okay, what goes on from here, and I really had a little bit of trouble sort of figuring out what did I want to read on this stuff is it, it, this really is all just a tremendous deep dive into this opinion of Rav. And I think a little bit of what's happening here is here you have an Amora who basically has this opinion about 
that you really can't do Kedushim with alone. And they essentially have all of this Tanaitic literature that kind of doesn't support that opinion. And instead of just saying like, Rub, we're not going to agree with you, they take the time to basically go through different brysas to say like, how can we make it actually fit with Rub's opinion? So essentially what's going to happen is after they've discussed this second case of the brysa, right, they're now going to go on and they're going to quote another brysa. Um, and this is going to be to discuss the case of, um, uh, to, to further basically discuss it. So the second brysa says, right, this question of whether or not you could do Kedushin with a loan, right, is also a machlokas of Tanaim in the following brysa. Right, if a man says to a woman, become betrothed to me with this document, Rabbi Meir says the woman, it's Kedushin didn't happen, but Rabbi Elazar says it is a valid Kedushin. Right, Samin Etanayar, we evaluate the worth of the documents paper. Right, if it's worth a pruta, it's 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 mikudeshet, and if it isn't, that it's not mikudeshet. So the Gemara is going to basically go on to sort of analyze, you know, to try to understand this price. High star right? How do we understand this document? Right, what is this particular document that it's talking about? Um, and so what it's basically going to go on to say is maybe it's not actually a document of the debt, but it's like a document of the actual Kedushin itself. So, I, you know, you could read, I, I, again, I found this a little bit of a hard job for us to figure out what, to, uh, what exactly to talk about here. But essentially, they're going to take this brysa and they're going to give, I believe it's four different ways of understanding what exactly, sorry, it's three different ways of exactly understanding, uh, you know, what this Brysa would be, okay? And then after they do that, they're going to quote another Brysa to try to understand Rub's opinion. So essentially what's happening here, and again, I only read really the top here, is that this entire, this death, pretty much up until the next Mishnah, which and you're going to do, is essentially taking this opinion of Rub. And saying like, okay, we have this brisa, we have that brisa. Introduce a brisa, and basically say, how can we interpret this brisa in a way that it will actually still be consistent of Rub's opinion? And sometimes they'll even provide multiple ways of understanding what the brisa is. So I know I've sort of spent less time reading inside the dab and sort of giving like a meta overview, but I think it really shows uh, sort of how respected Rub is that here you can have this Amora whose opinion is taken so seriously that essentially we try to take all of the, you know, Tanaitic literature, right? Which remember is the previous sort of, um, you know, time period before him. Rub is, is a first generation Amora and the Tanaim are, are, are the authors of the Mishnah and, and essentially want to say Rub's position has to be consistent with the Tanaitic literature and so we need to figure out how can we interpret these prices in a way that allows it to stay consistent. I think it also shows how complicated the question is, meaning we're dealing with an abstract issue and the potential for, you know, to, to bring about a concrete change in status based on the theoretical of it. Right. Like even just saying these words already, you can get a little bit lost in in trying to figure out what anybody's opinion might have been, let alone from several different brightos. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I'm going to go on. We have a new Mishnah on Amud Bet. 
Um, and it's another case of Kiddushin, right? He said, Shili Bakos Zeshalyayan. If a man says to a woman, You'll be betrothed to me with this cup of wine. And then it was determined that it wasn't wine after all, but it was a cup of honey. Or if they, he says, you know, be betrothed to me with a cup of honey, and it turns out that what was in the cup was wine. He says, be betrothed to me with this coin, right, this amount of money of silver, and it turns out to be made of gold. Or he says gold, and it turns out to be silver. So let me pause before the next one. All of these cases are a fundamental error in the in the wording, right, of the plan of the betrothal, right, where he says this item is X, and it turns out not to have been X, and so that's going to be the question: Does the betrothal work anyway because she agreed to the betrothal, or is it contingent upon the item really being that item? for her agreement to really go into effect. Okay, the next case, though, here is, um, he says, you know, again, be betrothed to me, for the, in order that, or in the event that I am rich, on the condition that I am rich, and then it turns out that he's poor. I feel like this is already, you know, like a B-level movie in the making, right? It's a, or he says, I'm poor, and it turns out that he's wealthy. Oh, that's the B-level movie. The first one is that crazy case in the news of late, right? Somebody who really, you know, functions on a on a misrepresentation basis. Okay, let's leave that aside. But we understand exactly this, right? Like, he presents himself to her in one way, and it turns out that the truth is otherwise. And now we're talking about himself, right? Not just the, you know, is the, the item, is the beverage in the cup a matter of honey or wine? Um, and I'm a All of these cases, according to the Mishnah, or none of these cases do, does it work as betrothal, meaning betrothal under false pretenses is not betrothal. It doesn't say anything in here about his intent, right? It doesn't mean that he's necessarily, or at least so far, we don't know that he's trying to put one over on her, but it doesn't matter, right? Like, vinimtsa, it turns out to be, it was found afterwards to have been other than the claim, that is enough for the betrothal not to kick in. Rabbi Shimon Omer, im hit'ah Rabbi Shimon has an interesting view. He says, if he misled her, but it's to her advantage, right? Let's say silver versus gold. And it turns out, to, let's say, in my, most of my experience, anyway, gold is worth more than silver. So that's to her advantage. He's giving her something better than the thing that he claimed. Or again, right, let's say, I don't know if it's fair to say that there's an objective um you know, better state to being wealthy over being poor. But let's just, for the sake of the argument, right, that he says he's poor, it turns out he's rich. So then that kind of, you know, being misled, it seems that it would be better than in that case, according to Rabbi Shimon, she would be betrothed. Um, because if she was willing, the implication being, right, that she's willing to to agree on the lesser, you know, the lesser value or the lesser um, benefit of being betrothed, then surely she would have been betrothed for the higher value, for the greater, again, greater benefit. I'm saying this a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's, you know, based on the givens, let's say. Um, the Gemara here gets complicated. It particularly gets complicated in the way the Rishonim, the commentaries here, try to, like, parse out what's the difference of each of these examples and when do, you know, when might you end up with a different, a different practical outcome? Even though the Mishnah sets it all up as, you know, very simple, um, they're all not Mekudeshit except for Rabbi Shimon's example, you know, his caveat, and 
in each case, the, we shown them go through trying to give an example as to what the problem is or why there would be a problem. So in my, um, again, my Koran, um, whatever I want to call this, the Noe edition, right, of the Koran translation of the Bavli, it has a really lovely chart that has exactly this, the commentary, the contents, the law, the reason. And it really helps kind of, you know, it helps quite literally lay it all out. I would suggest you don't need this particular edition, right? You could just lay it all out as you go through it um, if you want to, right? Um, the tricky part, I guess, is seeing all of the different commentaries because they're not all on the DAF. For example, one of the people, you know, one of the examples in the chart is the Meiri and the Shita Lo Yadea Lemi, Lo No Lemi, which is, you know, there's this really sh very sharp, incisive commentary where they don't really know who to ascribe it to, or at least it became known as that. I don't know if now, since then, since it became known as that, if it if they ever found who who wrote it. But the point, my point here is that the moment you start mixing and matching these different examples, then you're going to have um, analysis that says, but why this one versus that one? What's the benefit here? What's the disadvantage of the other one? And the Gemara here goes on to talk about, you know, like, okay, we talked about wine and honey, but what if it's vinegar, right? Meaning like once you're, once you've got uh, a semblance of this, you open the can of worms to this kind of mix and match kind of case, it really, I would say there's no end to it. You can raise more and more cases and more and more questions on whether it would ever work to be for the betrothal to take effect. Yeah. And I think what this mission is really elucidating is that there is something you know, there's sort of a premise here that when the man says to the woman, this is what I'm going to give you to signify Kedushin, that he's going to honor and give exactly what he promised her. And so this mission is sort of dealing with the question was, what if he ends up, what does that mean? Because obviously the assumption was she was, and instead she receives why. And I really understand both positions, the position that she should not, that Kedushin should not be valid. But I also understand that the you know the end of the mission where it says the the idea that like well if it's to her advantage maybe it's okay. I mean I think what's more bothersome is the idea that sort of like the marriage starts off this way it doesn't sit well with me. Well, so I think that to to answer that last point, I think the Gemara addresses it in the next case that it brings. I mean it's not in the Mishnah, but it is part of the fodder that gives rise to all this discussion amongst the commentaries. Namely, if he says, you know. Be betrothed to me with this cup, with, with the with the contents of this cup, or with this cup, with the assumption that there's something in it, right? But she doesn't say he doesn't say what's in it. He, she doesn't ask what's in it. There's no articulation of it. And now, right? So now let's play that out. Is it wine? Is it honey? Is it water? Is it vinegar? Is it oil? Right? Like, do all of these things equally count for her answer or not? When there was no specificity in the case to begin with, right? Like, so it doesn't have to be malignant, you know, God forbid, whatever, in or malice on his part, right? It simply could be, you know, a, a lack of information that leads into, I don't know, is it miscommunication or is it really just a lack of communication? And then it doesn't necessarily matter. And that's part of the issue here. Is like if he if he intentionally is putting one over on her, I think we I completely agree with you. Like that's a terrible way to start. But if it's simply that he thinks he's offered her enough information 
and it turns out that it wasn't, I think that's more messy. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, right? Like, I guess the, the point is when this type of confusion would happen, right? Is there an assumption of malice or is there an assumption of, you know, miscommunication? Right. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 